our prayer is that you will be filled with the knowledge of his will, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to Strength to Strength Sisters. My name is Jamila Kurtz, and I've lived in Kenya with my husband and nine children for the last seven years. We're so excited to be here with you all today. The vision of Strength to Strength Sisters is to encourage women to be catalysts in advancing the kingdom through biblical teaching, testimonies of faithful women, and thought-provoking discussions. Our prayer is that God will be glorified through this talk today. I have a few announcements I'd like to make before we start. This call is intended for sisters only. We're going to have a question and answer session after our talk today. Feel free and don't be afraid to participate. We would love if you would turn on your camera to ask a question. But if you prefer to submit your question through the chat box, that is perfectly fine. I realize that there could be questions that are heavy on your heart and are easier to share with a bit of anonymity. A recording of this session will be available on YouTube and our podcast platform. And just so you know, your faces won't be recorded unless you are speaking. Our topic today is Visiting the Fatherless by Marcia Zerman. Marcia is joining us from the beautiful Finger Lakes region of New York, where she lives with her husband, Lamar, or the farmer, as I've seen that she calls him. As Marcia says, our family has been blessed to be a part of a small home fellowship for 14 years. They have three adult children. They've learned many lessons and been hammered on the anvil of God's word through the years. We appreciate our rich heritage of Bible-believing parents and grandparents that that have helped to shape us for eternity. Also, as Marcia says, we've had various assignments from God through the years, including opening our home and sharing family life with several young women on their journey of life, adopting a child, and working with people in healing their lives through diet and lifestyle, as well as encouraging them to turn their hearts to following God wherever needed in their journey. We continue to walk in surrender to whatever assignments the Lord has for us. In infancy, as a fatherless child in need of a home, her parents answered the call of James 1.27 and took her in through adoption, and they gave her their name, family, and love. Because of that and other helps along the way, she came to know adoption into God's heart and kingdom when she was 25. She feels incredibly grateful for both of these gifts in her life. She grew up in a home of eight children, all brought into the family through adoption. As Marcia has said, she is passionate about understanding the needs that come because of trauma and prenatal exposure to brain-damaging substances. It's her desire to walk in wisdom from the Lord in educating herself and passing along to others what she learns about relating redemptively to children and adults who struggle from these things. I'm anticipating a blessing as we walk and through this talk today. It has been said that trauma is the biggest mission field of the 21st century. I know that this talk today is for the glory of God and his kingdom. I'd love if you all would join me in prayer 
I'd like to pray for Marcia before we turn the time over to her. So let's pray. Father God, we just come to you and we're so grateful, Lord, for this wonderful means of technology. Lord, where we can all be in different countries, Lord, in the United States and Canada, the Netherlands, Kenya, um, Australia. Lord, it's just so amazing. And we're just so grateful. And Lord, we just pray today, Lord, that there will be nothing, Lord, in this talk, Lord, um, but that would be a channel for you and your kingdom. Lord, we know how much Satan wants to destroy, how much Satan would like to distract us, how much Satan would like to just intercept any blessings. So, Lord, we just pray against him. Now, Lord, we just claim your victory. We pray especially for Marcia, Lord. Just pray that she could... um have a clear mind, Lord, and that she can just share, Lord, what you've laid on her heart. Help all of our hearts to be open, Lord, that we can just receive and we can hear. Lord, there may be some things that you convict us in, Lord, something that we need to go out and do differently tomorrow. And Lord, we just open our hearts to hear from you today. We just ask all these things in the name of your son. Amen. Okay, well, welcome, Marcia. Let's turn the time over to her now. Hello. Can everyone hear me okay? I did that right to unmute myself here. I am so honored to be here today. Um, it's a delight and a joy to me to be able to talk about this subject that's really close to my heart. Um, I do feel like I have friends who would have been more qualified to share on some of this stuff because I feel like their education is more advanced than mine, but God gave me the opportunity and I want to walk in into it and trust that he has a plan for this, this talk today. <clears throat> and I want to say thank you to my many friends who've been praying for me in the last six weeks while I prepared for this talk. This is a subject that is opposed to the, to the wicked one who would has a different plan. And, um, I anticipated a lot of warfare in the last six weeks, but I believe it was the prayers of God's people that gave us a very peaceful time in our home and gave me direction in knowing what to say today. So thank you so much for that gift that you gave me of praying for me and checking in on me to see how I was doing. So you probably already noticed that the title for this talk is a phrase taken directly from James 1.27, where we are told that pure and undefiled religion before the Father is this, that you visit the widows and the fatherless in their distress, and that you keep yourself unspotted from the world. I am glad that God wrote into the, to the Bible that there's distress that comes with fatherlessness. I think sometimes... Maybe we, we tend to think that our pain and, and the struggles that we have are not important enough to acknowledge and that we just need to be these perfect people that, um, you know, don't struggle with anything. But God has written, written right into the word that with fatherlessness comes distress. And so today I, I would like to talk about some of those things. I, I'm not going to be able to cover all the different distresses that come with fatherlessness. So, this talk isn't, isn't even long, long enough to say all the things that are on my heart as far as what happens when there's 
prenatal exposure to substance, substances like alcohol and um, other traumas, but I'm going to do my best to um, cover the things that are on my heart for today. And I tend to wander when I talk. So I wrote down the things that I want to share and I'm going to read, be reading a lot, but I'm hoping that it's still going to be personal and engaging to everyone. Um, even if I'm reading and hopefully it's going to help me to stay on, on my subject here. So as Jamila said in the, in the introduction, I was adopted when I was a baby. Um, for reasons unknown to me, I did not get to know my biological mother outside of the womb, but there, thankfully there were people with a vision to give me a home who, who provided very well for me. For 20 years when, for the 20 years that I lived in my father's house, I did not need to know where my next meal was coming from. I always had the same bed every night. I, my dad was home every night for supper. And my parents kept us well clothed and clean. And they sent me to a Christian day school for the entirety of my formal education. And for as long as I can remember, I went to church. My parents um, took me to church and I learned a lot of, I memorized a lot of scripture in Sunday school and in school. And I heard the word of God taught and read often. And I feel like those things, those gifts that were given to me helped me so much in coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ for myself and being adopted into the family of God. And I don't think that I will ever be able to completely comprehend the magnitude of sacrifice and investment that my parents put into my life, but I am grateful for it every single day. Um, I was born a few short years after Roe versus Wade came into existence and there was more um, public talk about abortions and those kinds of things back, back in those days as they are, as it is now too. And I've often wondered if my biological mother contemplated abortion for me. I don't know if she did or not, but whether or not she did, she chose life for me and I counted a privilege to be able to live out the purpose that God made for me and for everyone to love him with my all and to love my neighbor as much as I love and care and protect and look out for myself. During those years of my childhood um, in the conservative Mennonite culture, the culture that I grew up in, there was a, a lot of young families who had a vision to for the fatherless, maybe more so than in um, some of the generations before that. And so I grew up surrounded by adoption. I have many adopted friends. I have many friends now who are into foster and, and adoption, um, caring for the fatherless. And I just, for the, any of those parents who kind of pioneered that work in our culture back in the 70s and 80s. If you're listening today, I just want to thank you for the work that you started. You pioneered something good, and I'm so happy that it's continuing to this day. And I, But I think that we can all agree that over the years, it has become obvious that 
we have a great need for more education on how to relate to children in our midst who come from places of trauma. It may have been thought early on in this work that we can just take them into our homes and give them love and safety and they'll blend right in with our families and become stable citizens that serve the Lord. And I can understand that thinking because, you know, the Bible talks about sowing and reaping and, um, I, but I think we can all see that this ideal hopeful thinking does not nearly always yield the results that we've been looking for. And so I'm here to try to explain why some of that is. I'm not here with a formula for you. I, I, I did not come here today with a plan that if you do A, B, and C, that X, Y, and Z is going to happen. If you came expecting that, I'm sorry because I don't, I don't have that for you. I, I'm not here to say that your expectations will always be met if you do all the right things. But what I'm here to, to do is to try to explain the why behind some of the struggles that we see. And to encourage us all to choose love, which is the greatest of all, to respond in kindness and mercy and to go to great lengths to help each child that we receive into our care, no matter what it takes. It's not the job of any parent to force or control their children into doing good things. We cannot change a person's heart. Only God can do that. He never gave us that job to do. God knows how to draw each person unto himself and it is our job to choose to be tender-hearted like our father in heaven is and to let the light of jesus shine from our hearts to our children's hearts jesus said let the children come unto me and don't turn them away for of such is the kingdom of heaven and if jesus welcomed little ones and he welcomes the saint and the sinner alike then there's our example for, for us to follow for our, the whole of our lives. I debated about, I debated about not saying this next part, but I think it really does need to be said. And I want to talk to those of you who are on an infertility journey. I'm in no way diminishing your pain by making an appeal to you that you only foster and adopt children if you feel deeply convicted and full of compassion for the fatherless to do so, or if you're willing to provide for children because God has called you to it. Adopting children to fill a hole in our hearts is not the right reason to adopt. Children should never need to be expected to do only what God can do for us. And I I guess I'd like to say that if... If you find yourself already on an adoption journey and that was sort of your goal that you're going to, that adoption is going to fill that hole in your heart or is going to give you that instant family that you, you thought you never could have. It's not too late to change your vision. You can broaden your vision. God, ask the Lord. He can give you a, a bigger vision for adoption. Um, and like I said, I'm, I'm in no way trying to diminish your pain by saying that. Um, in my years of seeking for wisdom and education on fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, I came across an excellent explanation for it by a mother who is in one of the Facebook groups that I'm in for fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. She gave me permission to read it or to use it wherever I like. So I'm going to read it here. But first of all, 
Let me explain that FAS is a permanent brain damage from prenatal exposure to alcohol. So the mother drinks um, alcohol. It goes straight to the baby's brain and can cause a lot of damage that we cannot see easily because the child can often be very high functioning in their abilities. The deficits often show up in the ability to understand abstract things like time and money, something that they might need to have help with the rest of their lives if they're willing to receive help for that. So here's what my friend had to say about um, FAS. I've seen a few discussions on pages I'm on about the lack of visibility for FASD or fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, that it's not one of the talked about or known about disabilities. And I can agree with this. So many people don't know the massive impact FASD has on the lives of people that have it. So here's a little education so I can do my bit to help make it more visible. You know how when you drink, you lose a lot of your impulse control? Well, that's what FASD sufferers live with permanently. They don't have the natural ability to control their impulses, including the things that they say and do. You know how if you drink a lot, your memory suffers? That is another thing FASD sufferers deal with permanently. They can remember things that are especially important or special to them, but short-term memory for things like learning letters or sequences is almost non-existent, meaning that they need to be taught the same things over and over and over again to for it to sink in. You know how when you drink, your emotions are much bigger and more intense? That's also another thing FASD sufferers deal with permanently. When they're happy, they're really happy. When they're mad, they're furious, and they can switch between the two in the blink of an eye. So in short, the decisions of a mother carrying a baby can have massive, massive effects on their child that the child will never grow out of. There is no safe amount to drink while pregnant. You may think, oh, it's just one or two glasses of wine. It'll be fine. But it's a risk that is not worth taking. Help spread awareness of the impacts of FASD to help prevent more babies being born, facing the same hurdles my three oldest babies and us parents encounter every day. And that's the end of the quote from my friend. FAS is a spectrum and is very confusing because one day the child can remember things well and the next day they regress back to something you thought that they understood thoroughly and you wonder, what's wrong with your training? What's wrong with your teaching? So I have a picture that I came across in my studies which broke my heart and helps me often to understand that what I'm working with is not willful behavior but something that is neither my fault nor my child's fault but instead the reasons of some the result of something that happened long before either of us had a say in the matter. And here's the picture. <clears throat> I hope you all can see this well. But this is a the result of a brain scan done on a typical brain and on a brain that was exposed to alcohol when the baby was in the womb. And I don't know whether this is adult brains now, but um keep in mind that FAS is permanent. So it could be this is an adult brain scan. I don't know. But on this, on this brain, you see the halves are symmetrical and they're evenly equally divided. There's, um, it looks like the connections are all even and well spaced there. And on this side is the brain that was affected by alcohol. And you see it's much smaller. It's not divided the same as this one is. 
there's literal gaps. I mean, you can see the holes at different places and the connections are not the same. They're not even all together. My instructor called it, this is Swiss cheese brain. I don't know. Maybe that's derogatory, but, (laughs) and it was a good visual for me to help me understand what's happening. I mean, if there's not, if the connections aren't all there, how are we expecting this person to perform and, and know and live like this person does? It just, they can't. It's not a, it's not a won't. It's a can't situation. I don't know. When I saw that picture, I just wept because I thought of all the children that had been misunderstood over the years. Even the medical world is saying that. They're saying that we do not know what we should know about the effects of alcohol on a baby's brain. And they're trying hard to learn. But I think we just need to all keep being interested in education and seeing what we can do to deal redemptively with um, children who are affected like that. FAS can come with memory loss, inability to regulate on their own for many years, impulsivity, what appears to be lying, but often is simply the child repeating what is the truth to themselves, lack of understanding on ownership, so therefore you're going to have what we call stealing. What they see is theirs. They don't get it. They don't understand that as somebody else's. Um, even though you can say it over and over and over again, they do not for many years don't understand what stealing is. So you may end up having to change the environment for your family to have some sort of peace. You can lock up your money and your snacks and your valuables. And for the sake of peace, for the sake of not getting someone into trouble who doesn't understand why they're getting into trouble. Um, there might be meltdowns signaling to you that the child or the teen is feeling unsafe or unable to do what you're expecting of them. And you will need to figure out a different way to help them do what you're asking or lower your expectations for that time. I often think of it in my mind as dementia and an older person. Only with children, we try hard to help them to learn and mature as much as they're able because we are, we hope their brain will continue developing and we don't know where their maturity, maturity level will top out at. Whereas with an older person who has dementia, we know that their brain is going to continue declining and um, we, that it, it won't be maturing anymore. So like I said, it's a can't and not a won't type of behavior. The child is not out to manipulate you or control you, even though the behavior might feel to you like it is. This is a child who is struggling. The behavior is telling us something. It's telling us this. Um, they need us to be steady, kind, and merciful as they move through this disability. Parents who are caring for a child with FAS often feel exhausted being an external brain for their child. They will be the ones remembering for years to have the child properly dressed and their hygiene taken care of before leaving for church or other functions. That is one example out of thousands I can give you. You think, you know, that they know this by now, but you just find yourself constantly repeating over and over and over again because they don't remember it. They will need help. The parents will need to keep their lives empty enough because they're being somebody else's brain. That's really hard because we're all community minded. We all were expected to 
you know, show up and be part of other things besides taking care of our children who have FAS. It's exhausting to say the least. I spoke with a chief from a, a boys camp one time and he told me that people who come there who have FAS do really well in camp because they have 24 seven supervision and structure, but they've seen over and over again that the child will go back home again and soon be back to their old struggles because home is not camp. Parents have jobs. They have elderly parents to care for. They have a community to be involved in. They have other children in their home to nurture, for example. Um, it's not anyone's fault. It's FAS. It's the brain that has holes in it from alcohol that was exposed to that brain before the child was born. I'm in a group, another group on F, uh, Facebook run by adults who have FAS. It's really interesting. They have been very helpful for me to see, uh, to show me what an adult with FAS can do, can accomplish, depending where on the spectrum they are. But um, there's a, a lady in that group who's, I think, around 50 now. She has FAS um, and is fairly mellow and stable. And she tries hard to educate us parents on how to relate to our children. And she suggests that we need to be okay with giving constant supervision to our children up until they're 17, 18, 19 years old because of the lack of impulse control and um, inability to regulate themselves. And they end up um, saying and doing things or even, you know, flying into a rage if they're hurt while they're being, while they're playing and they don't intend to hurt anyone, but there's no one there to regulate them. Um, and they don't, they can't do it on their own. One of my friends told me this week <clears throat> that I'm supposed to come here and share that FAS is not being recognized in our churches and in our schools. And I told him that I would. I said I was already planning to say that. But he would know. He and his wife have at least three children who have um, FAS. And they experienced a lot of misunderstanding and um, misunderstanding in their churches and in their schools because of it. My heart weeps at all that they and many people like them have experienced in our churches because we ha- we haven't understood Um you know, they they should have had their hands held up like Moses had his held up by Aaron and her. But instead, there's been a lot of um, misunderstanding and people have kind of put up walls and um, asked them to leave and those kinds of things. I've been incredibly blessed to have gone to this little church for 14 years that has welcomed and given much grace to the fatherless. We did not set up set out to be a church that was that. Um, out of the 23 people that we regularly have in our services on a Sunday morning, seven of us have been adopted. And two have are sometimes there as a respite um, placements in one of our family's homes. Like I said, we didn't start out to be that, but God somehow put us together and gave us a place to welcome the fatherless and I've just been so grateful that my son got to experience that. He was in a place where people understood that um, 
His journey includes trauma that we have details we may never understand. You might think that since you don't have a child in your home from a place of trauma, that this talk doesn't apply to you. But I'm here to say that if you're a grandparent, a school teacher, a school board member, a Sunday school teacher, a church friend, a cousin, an uncle, an aunt, or a neighbor, you very likely know at least one or more children who are on the fetal alcohol spectrum or have faced other traumas in their life. I am told that currently in the United States of America, 80% of the children who come into foster care are on the spectrum for fetal alcohol disorders. Sit with that number. That's 80%. And that's only the children who are affected by alcohol. That's not even the people that are, you know, who've had other traumas and violence and um, abuse that they've had to experience as well. I guess I just keep thinking of the verse, we who are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. The use of nicotine during pregnancy can also be damaging to a baby's brain. I am told that when a pregnant mother smokes, the baby clamps down on the umbilical cord in pain, and then it deprives their brain of oxygen for a small amount of time. But can you imagine how um, how many times a day that happens if there's more than one cigarette that is used? What happens when a brain is deprived of oxygen? We all have seen effects of that, what, you know, someone in an accident who maybe was deprived of oxygen for enough time that it caused damage or a baby who was born with a cord wrapped around its neck and they couldn't breathe with it. And it was enough time that, um, it caused brain damage. So we, we know we've seen those things. And I think that, um, maybe we just haven't, um, understood that about babies who were born who had nicotine exposure. And mercifully, if the, you know, there is no brain damage from that, um, that it doesn't mean that their struggle because of the nicotine is over. It could be that their nerves are frayed, causing them to have a very low pain tolerance. Um, and other things can go along with that too. I'm told that a child who is, whose brain is damaged by prenatal exposure to alcohol is often half their age emotionally, whereas they might know everything that their biological age group knows, but emotionally they're about half their age. And, you know, maybe they will be able to reach great levels of emotional maturity, but it might take them many, many, many years longer than it takes a typical brained person to do that. And I guess my question is, are we willing to support them and walk with them through their journey instead of trying to rush them and force them to meet our expectations on our timetable? Are we willing to believe that children usually want to do their best and that their abilities sometimes don't match our expectations? I'd like to talk about trauma now as it relates to the loss of biological connections. And I guess this is the one that gets me personally because I don't feel like I've been affected by the drugs and the alcohol and all of that, but I have been affected by this one. I've often heard well-meaning people say that it would be better to take a fatherless infant into their home because the child does not know the difference in who their family is. 
and they have been influenced less adversely than older children. And I guess I can understand why someone would say that. Um, we all shrink from hard things, and we also have children we would like to protect from unholy things. But here's the thing. We were made for Eden. Thus, when sin entered the world and caused death, separation, abuse, and unfaithfulness, we are all affected by it. We all have hearts that bend towards sin outside of Jesus Christ. Many of us do come from long lines of godly families, and we ought to ever be, be ever so grateful for that. But because it brings a stability and restfulness into the lives of generations that follow, God made it that way. So when a child is separated from their parents, there is a built-in response that is called grief and loss. It is totally unfair to expect a child to erase their past because it's not possible. Your past is part of you. It's your story. There is written into our DNA the struggles, emotions, losses, sorrows, joys, pain, happiness from our ancestors. Think about it. A baby is carried in her mother's womb for approximately nine months. In that three, quarter of, three quarters of a year, she learns to know her mother's voice, her mother's scent, and the sounds of the envi- environment that her mother lives and works in, whether it is happy or sad, violent or calm. She feels her mother's emotions. Then she is born and placed into the arms of strangers. She doesn't recognize their voices. She doesn't recognize their scent. She doesn't recognize the sounds of their regular environment. There is a grief and a loss that even a baby experiences when separated from their biological parents. We know that it has to happen sometimes, but let us have great compassion and understanding for the children in this. I have a friend born to a mother from Cuba, but given a home among the Mennonites who often cook meat and potatoes with salt and pepper for seasoning, which is no slam on the Mennonites. It's their culture. So when she was about 10 months old, her mother was cooking, her adoptive mother was cooking a um, rice and bean dish with Caribbean seasoning. And that baby was sitting in the high chair, eagerly reaching towards the stove where she smelled this dish being made. She was rehomed at birth. I mean, she did not ever live with her biological mother outside of the womb. And then so her adoptive mother gave her a a bowl of this food, and she just eagerly gummed it down and was so excited. And to this day, she's five now. She loves Caribbean food. Why does she love that food? I think it has something to do with past environment and her mother and what her mother ate while she was pregnant, what her ancestors ate. There's been studies done on survivors of the Holocaust that happened during World War II. They discovered that even in several generations following that terrible time, the descendants of those survivors display some sort of behavior that would point to trauma, even if they themselves had a peaceful and fairly stable existence. Why? They carry it with them in their DNA. We can't escape who, who, we can't escape the things that happened in our family history. Not that Jesus can't redeem it. I'm just explaining the kind of the, the details of it behind the scenes. There was a study that was done on mice where the parent mice were introduced to a certain scent and simultaneously given some kind of unpleasant shock. 
then the next two generations of mice, they just introduced the scent without the shock. And those two generations of the, like the children and grandchildren of the parent mice, whenever they would smell that scent, responded in a negative reaction, like as in pain. Why? They weren't in any kind of pain. It's just so incredibly fascinating to me. I don't even profess to understand all of this, but I'm using the stories to try to get us to see that when we have children from traumatized places in our midst and those who have reached adulthood who still struggle, there ought to be in our hearts a great compassion for what they might have experienced or our feeling from their parents' experiences that we don't have the details to. I have a friend who has a a daughter through foster care who um, came into care when she was about a year and a half. She's now five, but when she was four, my friend was, they were driving in the car somewhere and she was stopped for speeding. And she looked over her shoulder to see her daughter in the back seat had a look of sheer terror on her face from when she saw the police officer. And my friend said she doesn't know all the details of her child's past before she came into her care but she believes that there was something something there to do with a police officer. It's possible that that's who took her when there was a drug bust at her parents' house and she was taken into custody for her safety. So when the police officer came to my friend's window, she simply said to him that I have a, ch- a child here who is traumatized by your presence. Would you please show her that you're her friend? And he did. He got down on her level and just really was friendly to her and explained that he's there to make sure they're safe. And I thought that was an incredible story that, again, we don't know what she experienced before she was in my friend's care, but there must have been something just by the way she was acting. I'm not saying all these things to say that there shouldn't be boundaries and, you know, teaching our children and trying very hard to show them the right way to live. Um, we definitely, I mean, society has its boundaries too. They're going to have to follow rules in society as well. So I'm, I'm just trying to say that it's time that we understand that there's a reason that, as I've often heard the quote, adopted children don't turn out. I don't like that phrase. I think it's because for far too long, we've had the wrong definition for what a successful adoption looks like. To me, a successful adoption is when you have poured your heart into loving and caring for someone for Jesus' sake and letting Jesus draw that heart and letting Jesus care for that person beyond what you can. It's not up to you to decide um, or you're not responsible for how they turn out, if you want to say it that way. I think it's high time we just change the the definition of a successful adoption. Um. I was once asked something that at the time I didn't know how to respond to, but today I have a response that I'd share if I was asked it again. A well-meaning friend um, who had a fairly idyllic life without a lot of um, heartache and loss in her childhood, praise the Lord. She was trying to understand the struggle of some adults who had been adopted in their childhood but seemed to not get over their past. And she asked me, Why are adopted children so special in that they spend years stuck in their past? Why can't they be like everyone else and just move on and live happy, thriving lives and be responsible like all the rest of us have to be? And I understand that question. 
But my answer would be to that today would be this. Were you found in a hut in Central America, malnourished and unwashed, needing someone to care for you? Were you misunderstood and harshly treated as that three-year-old expected to be three when you were probably about one in your emotional maturity? Were you bullied in school because of the color of your skin or because you were delayed in your emotional maturity but were expected to keep up with the peers of your biological age? Did you spend the first 10 months of your life in terror once a week? when the state ordered your fingers to be pried off of your foster mama whose arm you clutched to be taken into a scary courthouse where four armed guards were protecting the social worker from death threats by your biological parents who were given rights to visit with you. Do you know what that does for a child in breaking their ability to easily attach and bond with, with an adult? Did a police officer come and take you from the only parents you knew when your, when their home was raided by many other police officers on a drug bust? And you had to be rehomed at, at age one and a half years, not understanding what was happening and why you left the only home you knew. Were you made to give up things from your culture, like the language you spoke, the food you enjoyed, the bright colors and Latin American music for the sake of the German stoic lifestyle that is culturally accepted among the Anabaptist people, who innocently did not understand that your love of those things was not rebellion, but simply cultural differences? I could go on and on and on. But I ask, what if that was you? How long do you think those things that cause deep pain and grief and loss in your heart would affect you no matter how hard you follow after Jesus? And if you had no one who helped you to heal from those experiences, but instead heaped upon you even more misunderstanding, punishments and expectations you couldn't meet, how would you respond? What would be your experience, do you think? I don't hold any grudges over these things. I'm not angry. I'm not upset at all. I I know that life is a learning journey, and I know that there's so many things that even I still need to know. But for the children, I'm speaking. For the children, I cry. For my own ignorance, for far too many years, I weep. We just need to keep learning. Like I said in the beginning of this talk, I'm not here to tell you what all to do about these things. I'm just trying to explain what possibly your child could be dealing with. Children do not have a mature way of handling their feelings. They don't know how to express their terror, fear, and worry except to melt down, cry, try to control things, steal things, have memory blanks, etc. We all expect them to move on in their lives and just keep up the pace we set for them. It's totally unfair. I, I have needed to repent of this in my own journey as an adopted parent. I get it that it's hard to always know what to do and what is happening that is producing these behaviors in a child. Spent a day with a friend recently who has three adorable children through adoption. It was a really warm day and her children were out on the deck in their little kiddie pool splashing in the water. And we moms decided we wanted to be in the house where it was cool. So we were just on the other side of the patio door. We weren't even very far away. There was a window. We could see where they were. And my friend on several, several times tried to close the patio door. She kept it. She did it slowly and very quietly. But every single time, all three of those children were out of the kiddie pool, dripping wet in the living room with us. They weren't crying. They weren't whining. They were just there. And after several attempts to explain to them, look, I'm, I'm here. You're safe. You, you can play in your pool. I can see you. 
she finally looked, looked at me and she said, I give up. She said, they, they are deathly afraid of a door being closed if I'm not on the same side with them. She said, I guess I, I was trying to keep the cool air in and the warm air out, but I guess I'll just leave the door open and then they'll be fine. And they were. They played in their pool for a long time after that, and we had a good visit. And I, I cried that day because I saw a mom who was doing her very best to understand her child, children from places of trauma. Those children weren't punished for coming into the house dripping wet. They weren't scolded for not staying in their pool. They weren't um, scolded for wanting the door open. Um, instead, the, the mom was willing to just let the door open and let the, the cool air go out and the warm air come in so we could all have a peaceful visit. And I guess I would just like to say that visiting the fatherless in their distress often means that we lose earthly dollars and are willing to be inconvenienced while going to great lengths to let them know they are wanted, safe, and that we will find ways to help them heal. That's our job. If you feel in need of more than the basic information that I can give you in this talk, feel free to look into the links that we'll be posting in um I think on the website, I'm not sure exactly how that's all going to work out, but we will have some links of where places where I've gotten education, places um, that I've received help. It's, I really would encourage that. Um, and last of all, lest I paint a picture that is bleak and without hope, let me share that I personally feel whole and well in my own journey. There are days when out of the blue, I feel deeply abandoned and filled with a grief that I cannot explain. I think it is the grief and loss from being disconnected from my biological roots when I was a baby. And I just want to say, parents who are have adopted children, please don't let that offend you. Your child had a whole history before they ever came to your, your home, a history that you don't share and you probably never will fully understand because you weren't there with them in the details of that part of their life. It doesn't mean that they love you less. It just means that they have parts of their life that they, you and they do not share. I, I don't let the grief and loss define me. I don't let it consume me, but I am 46. I've lived with this my entire life and I'm just here to say that it is something that is real. It, it's, it just goes with you. Um, I feel incredibly grateful to be unaffected by drugs and alcohol and possibly a lot of other prenatal traumas, but I'm keenly aware that this puts me in the minority of most adopted children. I feel a strong sense of responsibility to be an advocate and to keep finding ways where I can help. So there's several things that I do specifically for, for me on my journey through healing from trauma, and also in walking with somebody who has a trauma journey. And I thought that I would just share them today in case it's helpful to someone else. Um, and you might find your own things that you do. But I wrote five things down. Um, there's more things that I do, but these are five of the basic things. One is I try to stay connected with God and to believe what he says. Things like he rejoices over me with singing. He says things like, I have called you by my, by your name. You are mine. And what will I do with that when I relate to other people who are also called by their name and they are his? 
I think of things like nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. No hardship, no broken thing, no unkind person, nothing. And things like the love chapter that tells me what love is and who Christ in me is going to be to other people. I read the word where it says that we tell ourselves what to think, Philippians 4, 8. And so I fill my mind with the word and with the songs of Zion, I am constantly listening to music. And I remember songs from my childhood that speak to me of hope and commitment and promise. I insist on gratefulness in my life, something that I strongly encourage and that I really feel helps me to stay positive and joyful. I credit Ann Voskamp for helping me on that part of my journey. She wrote the book 1000 Gifts. And in that book, she she has the readers do an exercise where you write down three specific things every day for a whole year, things that you're grateful for from that day. And, you know, at the end of the year, I had developed a habit and it stays with me to this day that when I'm going through hard things, I quickly turn to gratitude and praise to the Lord. And it really, really helps me when I'm going through whatever it is that's hard that day. So as Daniela said in my um my bio, I am an educator in the diet and lifestyle habits of the world's healthiest, longest-lived people groups, things that have served them well for many generations. There's things they do that really um, could help us all, and I feel like it has really helped me. They eat a, a high-fiber diet full of nourishing whole plant foods. They have a strong sense of community. They live a restful life with plenty of quality sleep. They have a strong faith, exercise by gardening and walking wherever they go. Um, one thing that I do for restful living is to, is to get out into nature regularly. I go on walks, bike rides, chase waterfalls and sunsets and enjoy the beautiful finger lakes all around us. Sometimes by myself, sometimes with family or friends. It's so healing. Um, and it reminds me when I'm out in nature, I'm reminded constantly that God has the whole world in his hands and that he carefully and and tenderly is caring for me every day. And I've also made it a habit to get involved in community. Um, sometimes when we go through times of trauma or heartache, we tend to shrink from community, but you really do need community. Um, there's a Proverbs that says that those who refresh others will also find themselves refreshed. And it is ever so true. I have experienced it over and over and over again in my life. Community is very powerful and very, um, very much very important on the healing journey. And last of all, I own my own story. The grief, the loss, the heartache, the tears, the gratefulness at being welcomed and cared for by others, the design that God created for me to live in, the people that God has provided for me at strategic places along the way, the bitterness I had to repent of, the years that God has simply led me day by day and helped me to embrace a Christ-focused Life in spite of the trauma and pain that I've known. I own it all and I take it to the Lord in a regular basis for cleansing, healing, and direction. God is a father to the fatherless. He knew me before I was ever formed. He gave me life within my mother's womb. He created me with a purpose. I find that when I focus on making life about him and about Jesus, my redeemer and my friend, then all other things fade into the background and become part of the story but not a ball in a chain to keep me stuck and unable to mature in Christ. Life is a journey. We don't all heal in the same way, nor in the same length of time, although we all need the same Jesus. For some, there are many more obstacles to cross over than others have. 
I would so love to just encourage us all to be merciful, kind, and as gracious to all as the Lord Jesus is to us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Together we can make a difference in the lives of the fatherless, whether it is through prayer, supporting families who have adopted or or are in the fostering world, um, giving people financial aid, providing respite, cleaning their house while they're in the trenches of helping a child through emotional through big emotions, um, maybe smiling into the eyes of the children when you meet them, showing an interest in a teen who seems unreachable, perhaps offering to take him skateboarding or biking somewhere, showing him that you care. The possibilities are endless. And Jamila, you told me the other day that you are taking a course on trauma. I was so blessed by that. This is yet another way that we can be involved Getting educated gives us tools to go on and help in ways that we might otherwise not be able to. I'd like to close with this story. One evening, my son was about eight years old. He was having an especially hard time settling for for the night. I'm not sure why he was in emotional distress that night. And we just couldn't find the right thing to help him, um, to comfort him. So finally, in desperation, I just took a big fleece throw that was on our couch and wrapped him up in it and sat on the floor with him and sang to him until he fell asleep. And then his daddy carried him upstairs to his bed, and I sat on the floor and cried and asked the Lord why my child needs to suffer. He's in a safe home. He's in a loving environment. He has stability all of his life. Why is he in distress like that? And God showed me something that night that really stunned me. I mean, I was probably almost 40 years old by that time, and I had known adoption my entire life, but I had not thought of it in this way before. God did not create father, fatherlessness. God created Eden. In Eden, children get to keep the two parents who gave them life, who go on to provide a stable, safe, happy, nurtured life until they reach adulthood and go out to live their purpose in the world as adults. I'm so grateful that God in his mercy provided a way for the fatherless to be cared for and loved in this broken world. He sets the lonely in families. He created the church, the body of Christ on earth to live his kingdom on earth, showing the whole world what the whole world would look like if every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This includes showing extreme love to all. Let us love, which is the greatest of all. God gives wisdom to those who ask. Let us ask and apply what he shows us. So thank you for being here with me today. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your interest in this. And I truly believe that together we can make a difference. Thank you so much, Marcia. Wow. I believe God has been in this place and, um, I think our hearts are all touched. I like how you said that, that, you know, this is not just a talk for those who are fostering or adopting. I think it's for all of us because we can all look around us, you know, and we can find the child, the teenager, the adult who's been affected by trauma in some way. Um, I'd like to open it up right now if anyone has any questions. Um, and just like I said, you can put your question in through the chat box. If you don't mind, we'd love to see your face when you ask your question. But if you'd like to put in through the chat box, that's great. Christina, I think you said there is a question in the chat box. Do you mind reading that, please? So Marcia can hear it. 
Yes. Um, Marcia, do you have any ideas for the tired adoptive mom with a son with FAS that needs renewed at home in her job? She cannot leave for the day, maybe cannot leave child alone for even five minutes. And how to teach a child with FAS about telling the truth, don't steal, etc. How do you keep them safe and other siblings? Well, this is, I think, where I feel a little unqualified because the child with FAS that I I have been for is the youngest in the family. So I haven't had to deal with what to do with other siblings, although I do have um, friends who've dealt with this. Um, as far as getting your own kind of respite, even though you can't leave them alone for five minutes, I would, this is where I really hope that the people, the people of God become aware of this because there's a lot of need for respite. So if parents could teach their, a friend or a couple friends exactly what they mean by respite and what works, would work well for their child, then they could have an afternoon maybe where that, that child is in a safe place, but in someone else's care or an evening where husband and wife can go and do something restful together or maybe just be with their other family members while child has care. Um, I know that's maybe speaking into the future, but that is my hope by sharing things like I shared today. I really would like to raise awareness for respite. Um, I know what it's like to have many, many years of feeling like you have no one to, to help you in that. Um, but as time went on, we have friends who, who became aware of the situation and then helped us out with that. So it was a real blessing in our lives. And as far as teaching a child with FAS about stealing and lying, when I have that answer for you, I might be 80 years old. I don't know. I don't have a real concrete answer on that. I think that is often um, the bigger issues with FAS. Um, it shows up in those things. The lady that I talked about on the the group with FAS on F, on uh, Facebook, she's she's fifty now, and she said that she used to steal cars, brand new cars off the lot, until she was caught when she was twenty four, and the FBI showed up at her door, and she said for some reason it jerked her into enough of a reality that she quit stealing cars, but um, she was twenty four. <laughs> At the time, so I don't know what to really tell you as far as a, a small child. You will really literally have to change your environment. Uh, it's like having a toddler for more years than what you expected. Okay, thanks for that. Does anyone else have another question? One thing I was wondering, Marcia, and I know you mentioned your diet, and I understand that FAS is a permanent brain damage, but have you found that there are certain dietary changes that can be made that you feel like helps? Like, could you talk to us a little bit, a bit about that? Um, yes, I feel like, and it probably helps everybody if you keep the sugar to a minimum and have a lot of high fiber foods in your diet, which is basically any whole plant food you can eat. 
Um, you can do this in any region of the world that you live. Um, anything from rice and beans to potatoes and vegetables to fruits and nuts and seeds. And I don't tell people never to eat dairy and um, meat and eggs, but definitely keep the plants to on the forefront of your menu. And it, it tends, I've found that it has really helped as far as um, keeping a child calm and, you know, it, it doesn't erase the impulsivity and the lack of regulation when there's stress and that kind of thing. But it has really, I think it, I've noticed that it really did help. Thanks for that. Anyone else? I loved how you shared about um, what is successful adoption. I feel like, you know, that would be a term I have definitely been familiar with, you know, that you just generally, it's just not that successful. And, the, and I have, I'm up north, you know, fairly far out west too. So I haven't been exposed to a lot of that that would be in a lot more populated areas, but that would definitely be the concept I would have always heard. And I wonder how many times that has kept people from adopting, you know, people that could be adopting that. I just wonder how many times, and I feel like that's very sad because who all could be helped more? Like if there was better concepts of it, because, and I feel honestly like that can be radiated into all of life. Mm-hmm. Like even the upbringing that I've had and stuff like what is a successful parenting and what is what is what does it look like? And I feel sometimes like the brokenness that we can all experience is bad. Like it's you know, it's not good when that's really what takes us to Christ. And I just feel like that is such a beautiful thing when, you know, man's idea of success, the world's idea of success is not God's. And since when have we ever thought it would be like, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just, and God himself says, my ways are higher than yours. And my thoughts are not your thoughts. Mm -hmm. That has really been striking me recently. And I just think, you know, surrendering to him and it's not always going to look like everyone thinks it should. Mm -hmm. So thank you for that. I think that's such a beautiful thought. Are there any other questions in the chat box, Christina? No, there's not. Anyone else? I actually, thanks for pointing that out, Linda, because that thought had really struck me too. And it's actually interesting. I've read that in more than one place lately that, you know, we don't judge success by outcome. We just, we judge success by our faithfulness. Mm-hmm. So very true. I don't I want to cut anyone off. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Can I jump in quick? I'm not sure how to put yeah, my no, go ahead, no. words. Um, thank you so much for what you shared, Marcia. And um, just encouragement to all you ladies out there. If you have a friend that has a child with any kind of special needs, go ahead and do something for them this week. 
Mm-hmm. I think, like you said, raising awareness, you know, we can help share that burden. Um, I have a, a cousin that has FAS. And so I witnessed what you were talking about all my life. And you, um, you did a really good job of explaining that it's not the child's fault, but that, um, they need extra love and attention. But I don't, I don't, um, relate closely to anyone. I moved away when I got married, so I'm not close to her anymore. But I do have a number of friends with children with special needs of different kinds. And, um, so that's my encouragement to everybody. If mm-hmm. you know, just, just step in, make yourself available. Mm-hmm. And the smallest act of kindness or that, you know, half an hour of babysitting just might make all the difference to the mom, like for a month. I mean, she, she won't get over it. <laughs> yeah. Um, Cause it is, it is such a lonely, lonely thing. Um, and I was, Oh, Linda's comment on success. I know so often we think about success. It's about us, mm-hmm. but that is so not true. Success is about God. Absolutely. Anyway, thank you. Yes. Thank you for that. Yeah. Thanks for that, Nola. That was a really good encouragement because I liked and I as I sat here, I was convicted myself and just thinking about that, the support to give the caregivers. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's a place like you said, Marcia, I love that you're raising awareness for that. (laughs) Excuse me. And as you said, you know, that's the way we can lift up the hands that are weary. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I think it's true. It, even a half an hour, it's just some, someone there saying, I see you. I hear you. I know you're going through something hard. How can I help? It's just um, you're not alone then. I did have one more question. So, Marcia, do you have, you know, do you have any suggestions or ways? So what if you honestly see someone who's parenting a child like this in ways that aren't the most healthy. Do you have oh. any suggestions for how you, how you can help them, how you can approach that? Well, it may be that um, they have never had the, the education on the, you know, I think there's a lot of people who don't have education. So of course we want to make sure we have mercy and compassion and I, I think for the children's sake, we do have to speak. We, we need to ask the Lord how to give us opportunities to kindly open the subject and say, have you ever been, a, are you aware of this? Are, have you ever heard about this? I really feel like your child is possibly experiencing symptoms of this. Would you be interested in hearing? I hope that answered your question. Yeah. And and I like what you said. It's still um, it's all about mercy and love. Yeah. For everyone involved. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I can just say from my own personal experience that it's been a long, long journey of slowly becoming aware, being frustrated and and um, feeling like they're doing something extremely wrong here and realizing that there must be something more because the. the other siblings are stable and attached and feeling, you know, are progressing. And 
all of that. And so you, for me, I spent many hours in the night into the early morning seeking answers. Um, and that is how I learned about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. I will never forget the night, three o'clock in the morning when I first read that and the blessing that that was because I needed to, to know about it. And then I had a friend who was aware of those things and she helped me with understanding it better too. So yeah, it's, I think even the medical world is saying that we're, we're way behind in what we should know about it. So I don't fault people for not knowing. Mm -hmm. And I loved your encouragement to just keep learning. I think that's something that we all can do. And I think your talk, your talk has been very informative Mm -hmm. and also very redemptive. So thank you for that, Marcia. (laughs) That was my hope and prayer. So if no one else has any comments, um, I think we're going to end our call now shortly. And as Marcia mentioned, we're going to be um, soon putting some links on the website. So I think we're all excited for that. And that's one way that we can all keep learning mm-hmm. and see what else, what other resources that she can share with us. We hope that you will all join us for our next talk in July by Bernice Choyer from Virginia. Her talk is Return to Thy Mistress, full of frustration with her own faulty plan to help God, Sarai, her faulty plan to help God, Sarai deals hardly with Hagar. Hagar runs to the desert to escape the abuse, but the Lord's angel asks her to return to her mistress and submit unto her hand. Why and how does this apply to the difficult relationship in my life? What can I do about the woman who controls and manipulates me and makes my life difficult? Let's talk about it in the next session. So we can all look forward to that next month. Uh, redemptive talk about difficult relationships. Marcia, before we end our call, I'd like to ask you if you can lead us in a closing prayer. Yes, um, I actually came prepared for that. But I'm going to actually read a prayer that was written by Amy Carmichael. If we all, we probably all have known Amy Carmichael's work somewhere along the line. She was also a foster mother in India. And I love the words that she wrote about in her poem called A Prayer for the Children. And it really speaks my own heart so well that I would just like to pray that prayer today. Mm -hmm. Father, hear us. We are praying Hear the words our hearts are saying. We are praying for our children. Keep them from the powers of evil, from the secret hidden peril, from the whirlpool that would suck them, from the treacherous quicksand pluck them, from the worldling's hollow gladness, from the sting of faithless sadness. Holy Father, save our children. Through life's troubled waters, steer them. Through life's bitter battle, cheer them. Father, Father, be thou near them. Read the language of our longing. Read the wordless pleadings thronging. Holy Father, for our children. And wherever they may bide, lead them home at eventide. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Marcia. God bless you, everyone, and we'll look forward to seeing you next month. Walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work 